All right. Howdy. It's great to see you all. Yeah, we came down here to escape the cold, and um, <laughs> we got that wrong. But uh, it's awesome to be here with you. And uh, we were talking backstage. You know, we, we still, I won't get into all the details of why, but we're not able to gather on Sundays right now in D.C. And uh, so this is probably the first time I've been in, a, in church physically with a group of people since March. And uh, so it's just awesome to be with you. It's, it's uh, still kind of bizarre for me. So if you find me staring at you, sorry, I'll, I'll snap back. But uh, it's just a little bizarre. But uh, it's so awesome to be here. I just want to, again, honor your pastor, uh, Ken Werlein, who's been a pastor and a mentor and a friend to me for a very long time. And I'm very grateful for his ministry and his life and uh, all that he's meant to us. And it's been fun to be back here. You know, this church was critical in launching us in D.C., and it's awesome to see, you know, even in the midst of all this pandemic drama, we've grown as a church, reached more people than ever before, not just online, but in community groups, and our giving is strong, and it's just great to see a vibrant church growing, even in a strange season in D.C., and much of that is due to the generosity of this house, and so it's awesome to be back with you, and so impressed by the youth center back there. Um, when I was the youth pastor here, uh, my office was a broom closet. Uh, it's kind of a storage uh, shed, if you will, so uh, it's nice to see the progress being made and uh, encouraged by it. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, like Ken said, we're in Ephesians. Let me read to you the two verses I'm going to preach. Uh, and we'll pray and jump in. This is Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. It says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, Father, I just pray that would be the case. I pray, Lord, we'd understand your word, but not just understand it, be affected by it. Um, that our hearts would beat in rhythm with yours and our life would change as a result of this encounter with your word. And I can't generate that. So we're asking you, God, to, to help us. And I want to invite all of you, if you're willing, to take a minute and ask him that. Say, Lord, please teach me right now. And then if you would, please pray uh, for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, I'll be honest with you, my heart is heavy this morning. I was preparing for this message and pulled up some old notes of when I taught this section of scripture in the past and found in it some uh, illustrations, notes I'd referenced from a spiritual mentor of mine, not so much a personal one, but someone whose books and ministry that I had followed and emulated in some ways from afar, uh, that just recently reports have come out that um, he was engaged in extremely inappropriate behavior. And, and maybe I'll just leave that there. But it's been devastating to learn that information and disorienting uh, to see the, the dichotomy between message and lifestyle. 
And so I cut all the notes out uh, I was going to use. And, and it's not that they weren't true. They're still true, the things he preached. But it is disorienting to watch somebody's life not match their message. And I was feeling that for myself. And I know a lot of people in the culture feel that, that maybe aren't Christian as well. Like, even if someone who is not a follower of Christ gets mixed up how our good works match with our message. They may think they precede it. Like we do good so that God will be happy with us, which is a mix up. We know that we do good as a result of God's pleasure landing on us. So they might get it backwards. You're trying to earn God's acceptance, but we know, no, we minister from acceptance, not for it. We minister from an overflow. The, the good work of Christians is a result, not a cause of God's favor. But even if they get the order mixed up, they intrinsically know our allegiance to Jesus should be worked out in our lives. That, that the identity of belonging to God should impact our activity. We all feel that, and it's disorienting to see a lack of integrity. That word's built off the word integer, mean one, that there's a oneness between what I say and what I do. And we're meant to live this way. And this is what the book of Ephesians has been talking about. That God has radically reoriented our identity and then that has a natural result in our activity. We should change as a result of the change that God has wrought in our lives. That makes sense. There's a logic to it. It's like every one of us, we have, every relationship we enter has an impact on our lives. Some more than others. Uh, your relationship with your mailman maybe hasn't changed you at a fundamental level, but, but there's been teachers and coaches that the way they've taught you or shaped you, has, has shaped the way you think and engage with life, maybe in a, a new way. But there are some relationships that when you enter them, they, they leave no part of your life untouched. The clearest in a human relationship would be uh, a spouse and a child. When you get married, that relationship, that union affects your dynamic with everyone else, every other human being, the way you handle money, the way you make decisions about big life goals. All of that changes as a result of this relationship. And same when you become a parent, every dynamic of your life is altered by this new relationship with this child. It would be weird if it did not. Like if you got married and I said, man, what's it been like? And you go, you know, my life hasn't really changed at all. I wouldn't celebrate that. I would ask if you've considered counseling. Like if you had a kid and I asked, man, how's it going? You're like, you know, it hasn't changed anything in my life. That would be a source of concern. Where is the child now? <laughs> These relationships should impact our decisions. This new identity should change your activity. That's how it works. And, and it's true in my uh, mentor's life, but I don't want to linger on him. I, I want us to apply this for the changing of our lives. So I'm not going to just come after him. I'm going to come after you. Let's all be changed as a result of this encounter with the word of God. But this is what the word of Ephesians has been doing. And I love the way Paul lays it out because it is the gospel that the first three chapters in Ephesians, there's only one command. It's the word to remember. All, all, the, all the work up front is God's work. 
that he does it, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies because he chose us uh, to be holy and blameless before him, that he predestined us to be adopted as sons, that he redeemed us, that he made known to us the mystery of his will, that he marked us with his seal, the promised Holy Spirit, guaranteeing us what's to come. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. When we were formerly hostile parties, he reconciled us across all kinds of barriers and frustrations to be one beautiful, multi-ethnic family. God has gone to work to generate this whole new identity for us. Children of God, recipients of grace, alive in his presence and forever with the future. He did that. And then in the last three chapters of Ephesians, you get over 60 commands. Now because of what he's done, now here's what we do as a result. Grace received becomes grace extended. And we walk in a new way. Uh, we do movie night with our kids and every Friday night and we're watching all these superhero movies and all of them are this person's endowed with superhuman powers and now has to learn to walk in a new heroic way, right? And some handle that better than others. And that's the book of Ephesians. God has made you something supernaturally new. And then five times Paul used the word walk to frame. Now we walk in a different way. We walk in unity because he's purchased this family for his glory. We walk in love because he loved us. We walk in wisdom. And now in the section we're in, it's under the walk, not as the Gentiles do, not as the ethnos does. He says there's people all around the world that are taking a certain way of responding to things and we don't do what other people do. And then underneath that, he says, so we walk differently than the rest of the world. So he says, so put off your old man and put on the new humanity. He says, the whole world will respond in some ways that we don't anymore. And he says, and they were ways you used to respond and you don't do them anymore because this new identity has brought new activity. Uh, we had a friend that was a bouncer and he came to Christ, radically saved, got involved in church, became a greeter at his church. And someone wasn't doing what they were supposed to do in the foyer on the way in. And so he just grabbed the guy and threw him up against the wall. And they had to let him know, like, whoa, man, yeah. that made sense in your former life. That was the appropriate response. You step out of line, you get smacked. But God has changed you, and now we change the way we interact with other people. We use our words and talk nicely. Like, we do it differently because of this new allegiance. Do you see? So, so everyone else may be doing it. We don't. And you may have used to do that, but you don't. And he's doing that with all different kinds of stuff. And in this text, he talks about it specifically as how we relate to enemies, to people who have hurt us. Now I say that and some of you go, well, Ben, I don't have any enemies. That feels really strong. Like, like I have some people that I secretly don't like, can't stand being around and secretly hope fail in life, but enemy, come on. Well, it's fascinating. The PR firm Weber Shandwick has done every year a survey in America on incivility in America. And every year, to no one's surprise, they've seen an increase in the amount of incivility in America. Unkindness at epidemic proportions. And uh, they were, I was reading their latest one came out in 2019. And the vast majority of Americans said, we're becoming more and more uncivil, Right. Uh, and there's big concern about that, which it's interesting to read the 2019 one. And I'm like, oh, y'all have no idea. Like 2020 is about to hold my beer to you. Like you, you literally have no idea what's coming when you wrote this in 2019. It's gotten way worse. So uncivil the way we talk to each other, the way we treat each other. And so they said, 
or increasingly uncivil, and we all see that. But then, here's the interesting thing. In that same survey, they asked people if your workplace lacks civility, where you interact with people face-to-face and have a dialogue and you know their names and they know yours, is that uncivil? And nine out of 10 Americans said no. Record levels of incivility, major concern, but not at all at the place where I normally interact with other human beings face-to-face. Well, so then where is it? And you can probably guess. It's right here. It's the way we interact through screens. And and there's something about this that isn't new. Uh, If you follow the history of nations all around the planet, what happens? If I can dehumanize you, then I can be inhumane to you. If I cannot see your humanity, then I can treat you as subhuman, right? And this has been the way regimes have handled large swaths of people for a long time. What this screen has done is it's just put a little bit of distance between your humanity and me. So I can interact with you as an idea. And if I don't like your idea, I attack you. And incivility is on the rise, mainly with the way we're treating each other here. So some of you may say, well, Ben, I don't have combative relationships. I don't have any enemies. Well, I want to speak to the online you. Can that person come to the front, right? Like, I want to talk to the you online. And some of you are like, uh-oh. Yeah, just buckle up. It'll look convict us all. But here, let me tell you something. There are parties interested in our incivility. I mean, um, an, an agent with the FBI, oh, we got to look, the Foreign Influence Task Force, he Uh, spoke on Capitol Hill about Russian influence in America and how they're actively spreading disinformation in the country. And they asked, well, what's the message that they're trying to get us all to believe? And his explanation was, no, there's not like a message they're trying to convince you of. They're, They're looking for the fault lines in relationships and they're looking for how to exacerbate them. They're not really picking sides in any fight. They just want to pick at the fight so you'll fight each other. So they asked him, what's Russia's goal? And he said, well, it's quite simple. It's to get us to tear each other apart. It's if I can exacerbate your differences, then I don't have to fight you. I'll let you destroy yourselves. And some of you go, man, that sounds familiar. That that sounds like the Marvel movie, Civil War. And yeah, that's true. But it also sounds like Genesis chapter three, that when the serpent enters the garden, He doesn't come with a full frontal assault. You know, when we talk about spiritual warfare, you think of like swords coming out and demons attacking. He never comes to the front. He comes with a propaganda campaign. God really say, seems to me, Eve, looks like he's holding out on you. And what was his goal? To unravel her relationship with God, unravel Adam's relationship with evil. So by the time you get one generation down, they're murdering each other. And all this unraveling leads to violence and chaos. See that? There's interested parties working to tear us apart, okay? And we have to go a different way. It used to be like this. Now we don't. So Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, from you, along with all malice. Bitterness, you know, if you taste something bitter, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, right? And so the idea here is someone did something that left a bad taste in your mouth. You don't like what they said. You don't like what they posted. You don't like how they talk. And you resent that they did that. Someone did something and it bothers you. But if you let yourself live in that bitterness, it moves down a progression. This is a a flow of thought that he's presenting. Bitterness and wrath and anger. That's a settled like, I'm upset about it. I don't like it. I don't like what you said. And then it moves on into action. 
clamor and slander. The word clamor means crying, screaming, and shouting. Whereas bitterness and anger is an internal disposition, if I let that fire continue, it begins to come out in screaming, crying, anger, and then it moves to, he says, clamor and slander and then malice. Clamor is I'm screaming, I'm shouting, I'm crying. Slander is blaspheme. I am saying abusive things to you and malice is now I'm willing to do evil against you. That there's a progression. Internal irritation becomes anger and anger becomes attack. And you read this verse and you're like, did Paul see Twitter? Like, was he prophesying now? Was he just like, yeah, you know, in a couple of millennia, they're going to create this thing. Buckle up, kids. Like, that's crazy. That's a high percentage of what happens online. Thin skin and a hard heart. And we're meant to be the opposite. We're meant to have thick skin and a soft heart. And he says, this is the way this goes. This is the way the society goes. And he says, but put all that away from you. We don't act like that anymore. And I love that language of put it away from you. The same verb is used of a flood washing away. He said, if that's in you, that someone lashes out on me and I lash back, someone says something, I'm coming back at them. Hey, even if they were wrong, even if you're right, what you do is what you did right. Was your response right? Two wrongs don't make it. Uh, you know, everyone hates being taught like that, but it's true, isn't it? But we feel it. I've had people respond to me online and I get so angry that I want to just blast them. And then I realize, no, that becomes the problem. I will enter becoming the problem. So this course, when someone hurts me, there's two paths available, two courses of action. And if I let bitterness become anger, become slander, become clamor, become attack, I am not following the dictates of my king. So I have to put all that away. I have to get out of that way of living. Some ways that have helped me, to be honest with you, is I've decided I will pray before I post. And I pray more than I post. And I've told myself scripture over social media, meaning I want to read the scriptures before I read social media. And I want to read more scripture than social media. I've realized for me, I've decided, like many of us, when so much was changing this year, I want to be informed. So I was reading the news a lot. But you've all probably felt this too. It's not just information. It's also a lot of anxiety and anger. So when you're done reading it, you're not like, well, I feel educated. You're like, well, I feel angry and upset. Like you just, it's stressful. And so I realized I want the information. I don't want all the anxiety and anger, but it's hard to get to the truth in the midst of all the crazy. And so I decided, you know what? I'm just going to dial down my media intake and try not to fall below the waterline of ignorance. Like, I don't want to be ignorant. I want to be informed, but I don't want to be anxious and angry. And I got to tell you something. You can cut a substantial amount of cable news and social media out of your life and not be less informed but be way more peaceful. In my life right now, I am nigh unto a monk, right? Like if you want to find me, Ben is out in the woods with his thoughts, right? Just living among, I've turned all my notifications off on my phone. I check the news when I want to, but I realized, man, I don't want to burn out because of anxiety. Man, I want to grow because I want more scripture than social media. And I want scripture before social media. I want the words of God to shape my thinking more than the words of any person I allow into my head. And so for me, that's been lingering in the word first thing in the morning. Before I check that, I check this. This will shape my thinking, not that. 
And I want to spend more time praying than posting. Um, Paul will open all, almost all of his letters talking about how he constantly prays for people. And you go, what does he mean he's constantly praying? Well, at, in those days, Jewish people would pray three times a day, the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And it was roughly an hour each time. So Paul would pray, presumably about three hours a day, which I remember thinking sounded so crazy until I read the report about the average American spends three and a half hours a day looking at their phone. Not talking to someone on the phone, not doing work on a screen, looking at their phone. And I thought, oh no, we do have time. We're just spending it here, not here. And if we don't like the outcomes, we change the inputs, right? Because what we think about will shape what we care about. And what we care about, we will chase. So what do you put in your mind? If you just feast on chaos and all your feelings, anxiety, there's a logic to that. But we're not meant to do that anymore. No, I want to feast on truth and have grace be the result. I want to be different because God's done something different to me. I want this new identity to change my activity. If I'm telling the world that I have intimacy with the Almighty, that the maker of the stars knows my name, they should see it in the way I handle a crisis. They should see it in the way I post. I shouldn't look like the rest of the world anymore. I have a source. They don't. You see it? So you go, well, Ben, if I don't clamor and slander and malice online, what am I supposed to do all day? Well, he gives us some options in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Now, kindness is the action. I do something for your benefit. Tenderhearted is the motivation. So he's telling us what to do and giving us a motivation to do it. We're meant to be kind to people, even people who aren't kind back. And that's hard to swallow. But he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. How am I going to be kind to people whose political beliefs I find abhorrent? How am I going to be gracious with someone who says something rude to me online? How am I going to operate in a world of anger with a heart of love? How do we do it? Well, I think the first way we do it is we have sympathy when we see their scarcity. We have sympathy for their scarcity. He says, be kind, tenderhearted. And that word tenderhearted is you splakna, it's built off splagnitsima. It means lower intestine. That I have an emotional response from my guts for you. How am I going to do kind things for you? It starts in feeling co-passion for you. That I see your hurt and I care. How am I going to be kind to someone who I disagree with? It's going to start with compassion. That I have sympathy for your scarcity. That's what Jesus did. That was his secret. You see that word compassion or tenderheartedness all through his ministry. That you saw that Jesus in passages like Matthew 9, it says when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had plans that day. He had other things he wanted to do with the boys and this crowd kept chasing him around. And rather than getting irritated like, y'all leave me alone. It says he looked at them, and when he saw the crowd, he said what he saw was not an irritant. He saw you were harassed. That means someone's constantly messing with you, and you're helpless. You don't know how to deal with it. I'll be honest with you, that's how I feel about a lot of young people and, and a lot of my older friends online. I feel like they're constantly harassed and being terrified, and they're helpless to filter it. He says, I saw that. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he felt compassion. And then the text says, 
And so he taught them many things. Rather than being impatient with them, he was patient with them. Rather than seeing them as an offer, opportunity for scorn, he presented kindness because he had compassion. He had sympathy because he saw their lack. A man with leprosy came up to him. When a leper came up, you're supposed to get out of the way and they're supposed to cover themselves, announce their presence. They're not supposed to get within six feet. It's gross. And so this leper comes up to him and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And in Mark chapter one, it says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be clean. He said, I saw that you were sick and you couldn't heal you. And so I had compassion and I touched you. He had compassion on the widow of Nain. She was a widow and her last son had died. She had no one to care for her, this aging woman. In Matthew 18, excuse me, Luke 7, it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. And he said to her, do not weep. He stepped into her sadness, co-passion. And he said, don't weep. And then in Jesus' fashion, he stopped the funeral and raised the kid from dead to the life. <laughs> he told a story in Matthew 18 of a servant who had more debt than he could possibly pay. And the master had compassion and forgave his debt. He told the story of a man who was beaten and stripped and left for dead on the side of the road. And a Samaritan saw his need and he had compassion. And out of compassion, he treated the man's wounds, put him on his donkey, rode him to a hotel, paid for two weeks worth of hotel fees, fed him, cared for him, took on this man's needs. He extended kindness because he had compassion. He told the story of a prodigal son who blew his dad's money on riotous living. But when he stumbled back to his home, realizing he'd made a mess of his life, rather than be bitter, the father, filled with compassion, ran and embraced and kissed him. And Jesus told that story to try to explain what was prophesied about him in Luke chapter one, verse 78. Because of the compassion of God, the sunrise is visiting us. The way you can be kind with your enemy is to have compassion, to see them, not as an enemy, but as a victim, to see what sin has done to them, to see that they don't have the resource we have. And when Jesus looked at the crowd, he says, you are lost. I can teach you. You are dead. I can bring you to life. You are sick. I can heal you. I don't have to say you're right. I can acknowledge you're wrong, but I have a source so I can be a source. And it's your scarcity that prompts my sympathy. When you see they're a blind captive, you can have compassion. That's what he did on the cross. Forgive them, Father. Why? For they know not what they do. They just don't know. John Perkins is one of my heroes. John Perkins came to Christ when he was on the West Coast, moved back to his native Mississippi in the late 60s, early 70s. Dangerous time to be an African-American pastor. And in that season, in that place, he was arrested and he was beaten to near death. They stopped beating because they thought he was dead in a jail cell. And it wasn't just that he was beat. What was done to him in that jail cell was, was sadistic. It was dark. And yet he recorded in his book with Justice for All about that experience. He said, I remember the faces of the men beating him. He said, they were so twisted with hate. It was like looking at demons. And then he says, for the first time I saw what hate had done to those people. Do you see what he just did there? He said, these policemen were poor. 
They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. And he said, when I saw that, I couldn't hate back. I could only pity. And I said to God that night, God, if you let me out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. And he had gone to Mississippi to just minister to his people, but he saw, no, the gospel's bigger than that. God has reconciled a beautiful multi-ethnic family. He even co-wrote a book with a former Klansman. The gospel is strong enough to turn enemies into friends. And the way John got there is the way Paul's advocating it. When I see someone who's acting like an enemy, can I see behind it victim? I have a sympathy for you because of your scarcity. You lack what I have. I had a woman pop off at me online and I'm trying not to read comments anymore. I'm really trying not to read much internet at all, but she had said something to me and it just instantly sparks that anger and I want to attack back. And I realized, no, just don't do it. Put it away, pray more than you post. And afterwards I was like, let me just answer her question like it was a sincere question. And as soon as I did, she wrote back a long response to me, thanking me for that. And in her response, I could pick up on it. Oh, she was just scared. And in her anxiety, it became anger. And when she was met with some humanity, our conversation became humane. We can do something different, right? Out of sympathy for their scarcity, but ultimately he'll tell us forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So I can be kind because of their scarcity and I can be gracious because of his supply. I forgive you. Why? Because you deserve it? No! Someone may say something and they don't deserve grace. They don't. But nobody does. That's not how this works. None of us earned it. He came to us while we were sinners, dead in our transgressions, objects of wrath. That's our whole story. We didn't earn our way in. His grace flew towards us anyway. They won't earn their way in. Grace can change you. That's what Beauty and the Beast taught us. I was working out last night, went down to the hotel gym and Beauty and the Beast was playing on one of the treadmill TVs. I'm like, who watches Beauty and the Beast to work out? Like, okay, yeah. Like, like, I don't know. So I watched it. And as I was watching it, what's the message of Beauty and the Beast? Besides the obvious concerns about kidnapping uh, that I don't know were the original intent. What, what, What was the message? You have to love someone to make them lovable. It's when you become humane to someone, they have the possibility to be human, right? Now, that breaks down in dating relationships, okay? Don't have time to get into that dynamic. But it's how our gospel works. It's love extended towards us that becomes love embraced and extended towards others. It's the grace of God that flew first to us. And when it does that, then it can fly through us to others. This is how the gospel works. So when you see an enemy, what do you see? Do you see an object of your wrath? Or do you see a potential object of grace? I want to challenge you today. Think of the politician you hate the most. You don't have to say it out loud. Just think it in your mind. (laughs) And I want to challenge you. Will you pray for him? And not just that God would smite them. Pray that he'd save them. Pray that he'd pull an apostle Paul. Paul says, that was a murderer. That was the worst of all sinners. That was an object of wrath. 
But God, because of his kindness, saved me. God makes murderers into missionaries. He makes enemies into friends. He makes objects of wrath into trophies of his grace. That's what he does. That's our message. That's our gospel. And let me tell you something. When the world sees that out of us, we can change things. That's what happened in the early church. As Nero would slaughter Christians, people expected Christians to do what everyone does when they were being slaughtered unjustly. Clamor and slander, scream and curse and blaspheme and cry. But when the Christian would go to martyrdom, they were silent except they would whisper prayers just like their Christ. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. And when people saw that in the Christian, they said, you have a supernatural source that provides supernatural activity like that. No one acts like that. Everyone does this. No one does that. And when we see that in you, the only way you can do that is you must have a supernatural supply. And Christ was honored because of the gracious response of the Christian. And it can happen again. It can happen through us. Society's changed in the past because of the grace of God flowing through his children. And it can happen again. I have a lot of hope for our community, this city, our country. But it's the grace of God flowing through his gracious people. Knowing we didn't deserve it, but it came for us. And knowing they don't deserve it, but it can flow through me to them. That's the beauty of our message. And may the world see it and receive it. So God, I want to thank you that You're honest with us. The chasm between you and us was wide. Far wider than we could cross. Far greater than we could manage. But when you saw our sickness, you didn't recoil. You touched us. When you saw our shame, you didn't turn away from us. You moved towards us. When you saw the weight of our sin... You pulled it off of our weary shoulders and you strapped it onto yours. And when you saw our just penalty, you took it upon yourself and you bled out for us. And the unrighteous became righteous. The dirty became clean. The lost became found. The abandoned became the adopted. The horrible became holy. So God, I pray those of us who know grace can show grace. May we set our minds on you this week more than on anywhere else. And so as we move into the culture, may we change it because we have a source for their scarcity. Give us a vision now, God, of how to draw away to meet with you. Give us a vision of healthy boundaries to set to guard our mind. Give us a vision of the kindness we can extend in your name, just in the small ways to put hope back into our society again. And give us hearts and minds that are fixed on your gospel and the beauty of it, because that's what's going to empower a beautiful life. And if anyone here, God, has never put their faith in you, may that story ring true in their heart today. Before you do a thing for God, you need to know what he did for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bled out for you, died for you, took your sin and shame, buried it in the grave, and then he rose without it so you could live without it too. 
that we could be holy and pure and alive. You put your faith in Jesus today. That's what God wants. And let him change you from the inside out and may this radical new identity change profoundly our activity in the culture. And may a lost and hurting world be stunned when they see us praising our God because we have a living hope. Stir our hearts, God, for your glory and their good.